Hi, good evening. Thank you all so much for joining us tonight. Uh, it's wonderful to have so many old friends here and new, uh, and congratulations on the start of another school year. Who would have thought uh, we'd still be working through all of the after effects of the pandemic and uh, the impacts that that has on the educational system across the country. Uh, but I'm Alan Carey, I'm the Director of Sphere Education Initiatives. I'm thrilled to be here tonight, both to welcome you to Sphere and this programming, uh, but also to serve as your moderator. I wanted to walk through a few quick pieces as we get started to talk a little bit about what we're going to do tonight. Uh, first and foremost, for those of you who are here already, if you haven't yet, make sure you set your name in the chat to be your actual name. I know sometimes we get abbreviations and other things in there. That way we're going to be able to issue out um, a certificate for uh, participating in the program after completion tonight. So uh, if you've not yet done that yet, hover over your name, change it to uh, whatever it is that you registered under. But we're so excited to have you. Uh, like normal with Sphere events, we want this to be convivial. We want it to be full of conversation and engagement. We'd love for you guys to engage as much as we can uh, throughout the chat and throughout the conversation as a whole. So please do engage there. And as in the Sphere, uh, sphere as a whole, we'd love this to be one that's defined by civil discourse and intentional engagement. So uh, if you're enjoying the chat, you're putting your questions in there, you're engaging with us, please, by all means, make sure that you're doing so in a way that looks to be respectful, looks to learn from each other, and especially as you're asking questions for our participants tonight, uh, framing it in such a way that shows your excitement and interest to learn and who they are and what they have to share. So thank you for joining us tonight to talk a little bit about the program as a whole. Uh, we're coming together to talk about the status of the Second Amendment after the Heller decision. Uh, so for many of you who may be familiar with this, Heller versus the District of Columbia is a very important Supreme Court case that looked at questions relating to the Second Amendment. So tonight we're joined by a couple of fantastic scholars who are going to join us talking about different components of that. The conversation as a whole tonight will spend about a half an hour, give or take, digging into the background of that conversation, a moderated uh, conversation with our panelists on uh, the Heller case, what that was all about, what we've seen since then, litigation, policy, uh, legislative fights around the Second Amendment and regulatory matters related to it in the, the proceeding years. And then we'll finish with a very important Supreme Court case. Uh, part of the reason that we wanted to have this conversation tonight is that there's a, a new case in front of the Supreme Court in the upcoming term that takes a look at this question of the Second Amendment again. So I'll, I'll leave it to our scholars to explain a little bit about what that is uh, and where we go from there. Uh, so with that, let me go ahead and begin introducing our scholars for the evening. Joining us First is Joseph Bloker, the Lanty L. Smith 67 Professor of Law at Duke University School of Law. His principal academic interests include federal and state constitutional law, the First and Second Amendments, legal history, and property. His current scholarship addresses issues of gun rights and regulation, free speech, the law of the territories, and the relationship between law and violence. He published articles on those and other topics in the Harvard Law Review, Yale Law Journal, Stanford Law Review, Duke Law Journal, Yale Journal of International Law, and other leading journals. He is co-author of Free Speech Beyond Words from NYU Press and the Positive Second Amendment, Rights, Regulation, and the Future of Heller uh, from Cambridge University. He serves as co-director of the Center for Firearms Law and has spoken before Congress and written for the New York Times, Washington Post, Slate, Vox, and other public outlets. He returned to his hometown of Durham to join the Duke Law Faculty in 2009 and received the law school's Distinguished Teaching Award in 2012. Before coming to Duke, he clerked for Guido Calabresi of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit and Rosemary Barquette of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eleventh Circuit. He also practiced law at Mulvaney and Myers LLP, where he assisted the merits briefing for the District of Columbia in District of Columbia v. Heller. 
Also joining Joseph tonight is my colleague at the Cato Institute, Trevor Burris, who's a research fellow at the Cato Institute's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies and editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. His research interests include constitutional law, civil and criminal law, legal, political philosophy, legal history, and the interface between science and public policy. His academic work has appeared in journals such as the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy, the New York University Journal of Law and Liberty, the New York University Annual Survey of American Law, the Syracuse Law Review, and many others. His popular writings have appeared in the Washington Post, the New York Times, USA Today, Forbes, the Huffington Post, New York Daily News, and others. Burris lectures regularly on behalf of the Federal Society, the Institute for Humane Studies, the Foundation for Economic Education, and other organizations, and he frequently appears on major media outlets. He is also the co-host of Free Thoughts, a weekly podcast that covers topics in libertarian theory, history, and philosophy. So thrilled to have both of you joining us tonight. Thank you, gentlemen, both for the conversation uh, and joining our teachers. One last note to our teachers. We're going to be taking, like I mentioned, a Q&A section at the end of the conversation tonight. Please, please, please put your questions in the chat. We'll be pulling from those as the main vehicle for driving that part of the conversation. So always thrilled to have those. Uh, so wanted to begin tonight, a uh, question for you, Joseph, talking a little bit about uh, well, where we began on this conversation. So uh, District of Columbia versus Heller, very important Supreme Court case. Walk us through that. What was the what was the case about? There's also lots of controversy about what it means and what it doesn't mean. Uh, give us the the lay of the land, if you will. I'd be happy to. And at first, I should just say thank you, um, Alan, for having me be part of this fantastic, fantastic series. It's a real pleasure to be doing having this conversation with you and with Trevor, whose podcast I highly recommend for anybody who hasn't heard it. It is fantastic. Um, so the invitation that Alan just gave me, I think, is a great place for us to start, which is District Columbia versus Heller, in many ways, sort of the birth of the modern Second Amendment, sort of the last 13 years, sort of a different era uh, for the Second Amendment than what came before it. But I actually want to start with the text itself, the text of the Constitution, which is, you know, where we usually begin in constitutional law, because we actually do have these sort of 27 words in the Constitution, which are the center still um, for the constitutional interpretation, the constitutional debate. You may, these may all be familiar, you may have this on a bumper sticker somewhere, or you may know it, but the text of the Second Amendment, for those not familiar, a, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. 27 words has spawned uncounted millions political debates of 1500 court cases in the last 13 years alone. And of course, one really important Supreme Court case, um, District of Columbia versus Heller from 13, 13 years ago. Now, the reason I focus on those words is I think they nicely illustrate maybe two competing visions of what the Second Amendment might mean. And this is really the central question in the Heller case, right? So on one view, the Second Amendment exists to protect the organized militia. Like, for example, what we think of in the late 1700s as the state militia. Today, it's a little harder to say what that would mean, but that's what it probably would have meant in the late 1700s. And so the idea would be the amendment exists to protect those militia or people who are connected to those militia from being disarmed by the federal government or some other governmental act. That's one vision. And for 200 years or so, that's basically the vision that held sway in the federal courts for more than two centuries. There's not a federal Supreme Court case, a federal court case rather, anywhere in the United States striking down a gun law on Second Amendment ground. But there's a competing vision which focuses more on the second half of the Second Amendment, the part that says the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And this vision says the Second Amendment exists to protect the right of the people, individuals included, whether or not they're connected to a militia in one way or another, 
to bear arms for private purposes, like, for example, self-defense, to have a gun in your home to defend yourself against a criminal, for example. The choice between these two visions of the Second Amendment, which we could call the militia-based vision and the private purposes vision, was really kind of the central question in this case, which Alan mentioned, and which, again, I should emphasize just for purposes of full disclosure, I was an attorney involved in this case, this case called District of Columbia versus Heller, which came to the court uh, in 2008. So in District of Columbia versus Heller, the court handed down a five to four decision, uh, so divided, but that's not unusual in, in some important constitutional cases, um, in, in a case involving a man named Dick Heller, uh, who was a security guard at the Federal Judicial Center in Washington, DC. And what Dick Heller wanted was to be able to keep a handgun in his home for self-defense. And the district at the time had, along with Chicago, the strictest municipal gun law in the country. It effectively prohibited anybody, including a person who is a security guard at the Federal Judicial Center, from having a handgun in his home for self-defense. Dick Heller argued that this violated his Second Amendment rights. Now, under the militia-based reading, it probably wouldn't because there was no allegation that he was any member of an organized militia. But on this private purposes view, it might well, because it would have taken away his right to have a gun in his home to defend himself uh, 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 and others. The Supreme Court, in this 5-4 decision, the majority opinion was authored by Justice Scalia, agreed with Dick Heller that the Second Amendment protects the private purposes right, that is, an individual right to keep and bear an arm in your home for self-defense. And if you know anything about Justice Scalia's jurisprudence, or if you've heard anything about it, you won't be surprised to hear this was an opinion with a lot of historical analysis, what we would call an originalist opinion, more citations to secondary sources, to scholarship, dictionaries, newspapers, than there are citations to statutes and court cases and constitutional provisions, because precisely what interests Justice Scalia is, what did, this, what did these words mean at the time they were ratified, you know, in the view of the sort of well-informed um, uh, uh, member of the public. But what's interesting about Heller, one of the many interesting things about Heller, is that Justice Stevens, who authored the majority, the, the, I guess the lead dissent, if you like, um, also adopted a, an originalist approach and found sort of different lessons in that same kind of history. So we had the justices really citing some of the same sources and just drawing very different conclusions from what, um, from what they meant. In any event, Justice Scalia's view prevailed. It was, I should emphasize that in the private purposes view is the view held by at least three quarters of Americans according to polls at the time. So this was not the Supreme Court handing down a decision that was unpopular. The day it came out was during the um, uh, 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 Obama-McCain campaign. Both Obama and McCain came out and said they supported the decision. So in that sense, not particularly radical. One of the reasons it was not radical is that, or less radical than it might have been otherwise, is that the court emphasized that the right to keep and bear arms, like all constitutional rights, is subject to some forms of regulation. Sometimes people talk about rights as if they can't be regulated, you have a right to free speech, therefore you can say whatever you want. Of course that's not true. There are kinds of speech that can be prohibited, whether it's libel, securities fraud, whatever. The same is true for the Second Amendment. And in a very, very important paragraph, the Supreme Court said, this is Justice Scalia's words, nothing in our opinion should be taken to cast doubt on the longstanding prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons and the mentally ill or laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places such as schools and government buildings or laws imposing conditions and qualifications on the commercial sale of arms, they go on elsewhere to talk about dangerous and unusual weapons, about concealed carry. The point is basically the court said there's definitely a constitutional right and it's subject to some forms of regulation. 
What the court didn't do is say a lot about how you can decide which kinds of regulation are constitutional and which ones are not. So that's, I think, where Heller sort of leaves us. And maybe that's where I'll, I'll pause for now. Excellent. I think that's a, a fantastic introduction to it. Uh, I, I remember the, the decision coming out very succinctly and it feeling, I can only imagine how it would feel today if that same decision come out, but it feeling like it was a bombshell decision, that it was such a, a, a radical uh, radical conclusion from the, the court, or at least that's how it felt with all of my friends and colleagues at the time. Uh, but to, to hear you describe it, it seems like it's like, well, that's a, that's a fairly pedestrian and middle of the road presentation of it. I, I think that's a, a fantastic reminder to all of us that so often with these kinds of cases and situations, there is um, well more and less than meets the eye in the conversation. Uh, Trevor, I wanted to turn it over for you, one, to, to see if there's anything else you wanted to add about Heller, but I think uh, more specifically to, to walk us a little bit through, well, what's been the case since the Heller decision? What's been the sort of relevant uh, jurisprudence or regulatory approaches to the conversation as, as courts and uh, uh, politicians and others try and wrestle with that decision? Yeah, thank you, Alan. Thank you everyone for being here. Uh, thank you so much, Joseph. Uh, I don't think there couldn't be a better person to demonstrate the, the possibility of having a civil discourse on this incredibly divisive topic. Everything Joseph said was, was accurate. I mean, we of course have our disagreements about various things. Um, it's interesting with Heller what had happened before that case. And you could argue about how many cases had the Supreme Court ever heard about the Second Amendment. And so, and in some sense, it's actually just one uh, from 1939 called U.S. v. Miller, which was a case about whether or not a, a guy traveling across the Oklahoma border could have a sawed-off shotgun. And for decades, people debated what was the meaning of that decision. And it was part of what Joseph said. It was, do you have an individual right or is it part, or is it part of a militia? And you can read the Miller decision. You can say, well, one of the things they're saying is that a sawed off shotgun is not a military type gun. That could be one of the holdings. Or you could read it to say he's not in a militia. Or you could even read it to say there's an individual right. Uh, the, you know, from my point of view, the individual right to self-defense is one of those in the Declaration of Independence, the sort of framework within our constitutional system is set up that the government exists to protect rights and it protects pre-existing rights. So the, the Bill of Rights does not give you any right. I mean, we could talk about jury trials, but, but like the Bill of Rights does not give you the right to free speech. You have a right to free speech inherent because of natural law would be the, what the framers would have thought. And you also have a right to self-defense. And so one of the the ways we think about this, the way I think about it, uh, is when you have the right to free speech protected by the First Amendment, it also entails the right to effective means of conveying speech. So it, it protects pins, it protects the internet, it protects ways of speaking. And the fact that the internet didn't exist in 1789 uh, is sort of irrelevant to what the First Amendment protects. It protects effective means of communications, but it has limitations. And Joseph and I agree on this. It, you can't do libel, you can't do securities fraud, you can't start a radio station and blast it up to 500,000 watts and take over all radio stations in the immediate you know, three state area. These are not protected by the First Amendment. And arguably we can talk about limitations in the Second Amendment. It protects the right to self-defense and then effective means to, effective means to carrying out that right. Uh, and we, it's what that would actually mean. Now, that's the natural rights view. Uh, now to Alan's question more specifically, since Heller, so the next thing that happened after Heller, uh, kind of go, I'm not going to get too much in the weeds on constitutional law because we, we, we could talk about so much, but uh, 
one of the reasons we didn't see many Second Amendment cases for 200 years was because the right was not incorporated against the states. And what that means is that after the Civil War with the 14th Amendment, the Bill of Rights was made slowly to apply to the states, which meant before the Civil War, if you, went, if you, if you lived in Maryland and you said, Maryland is denying me a right to keep a gun and it violates my Second Amendment rights, uh, the court would have said, no, Maryland does not violate your, your rights under the Bill of Rights. It's it has to be Congress that takes away your gun, not Maryland. So the next case was called McDonald v. City of Chicago, which was filed the day that Heller came down. And then they said, now this also applies to the states. Since then, very little has been happening. There's been a lot of behind the scenes stuff where people have tried to bring cases to the court uh, about whether it's something big like a, a quote unquote assault weapons ban or a magazine restriction, or about a case, for example, that I was involved in called Sylvester, which was a very, very small regulation of arms, which was the 10 day waiting period for buying a gun in California as applied to people who already own guns. Uh, so so there, there was literally, it was, so you already own a gun, but every successive gun you buy, you have to wait 10 days. So that was a very small chance to say, is, could this possibly violate the Second Amendment? And what the court has tried to avoid doing up until really this case coming up, and then there's one that was mooted, uh, I think due to the Chief Justice in particular, was, was it's not weighed into the issue too much. Uh, but it's getting to the point that they're going to have to wade into, wade into it and like give more context to that paragraph that Joseph read. Uh, I call it, and a lot of people call it the Kennedy paragraph. Um, it was a 5-4 decision and Justice Kennedy was the swing vote. And a lot of times when the justices start having this conversation, Kennedy might be like, I'm willing to sign on to this opinion if you insert a paragraph that makes it less broad. And that's what that paragraph does. And that paragraph has basically been the center of litigation in many ways for the last 10 years. What are sensitive places? What are longstanding prohibitions on guns? All of those things have been the, the center of what litigation is. And Kennedy would not have signed on to the opinion with presumably, we don't know this, but presumably without that paragraph in it. And so in this next case, we're gonna be talking, you know, we'll get that more to the end, but the, the, now it's the right to bear arms outside of the home. So in one very narrow sense, Heller just protects the right to have a handgun in the home. That'd be the narrowest real ruling you could possibly interpret that. Um, and now the question is, how broad does it go? So I wanted to, I wanted to jump in at this point and talk, uh, pose a question for both of you and talk a little bit about where most of the conversation tends to happen right now, at least in, in some of the policy debates. And that is, uh, well, the Supreme Court hasn't yet ruled or given some of that clarity on which of the pieces when it comes to that measure of regulating the fight has to then happen at a more local level, right? At a state level or in Congress as they're thinking about some of these different pieces. How do we do that? Uh, I wanna ask a question that I think uh, was implicit in the conversation that the, the three of us had uh, last week, which was uh, what are actually the biggest sideshows when it comes to the second amendment and regulation? That is the things that people talk about but don't actually matter as much as it seems. Right, so we talked a little bit about some of those kinds of features. I, I, Joseph, let me ask you first. I know you've got some thoughts on this in particular. What are some elements around conversations about regulation and the Second Amendment that uh, feel like they're important, given how they're in the media, but when it comes to sort of the, the meat of the real conversation of what's going on, don't actually end up mattering as much as it seems? Yeah, 
Yeah, it's a great question. Now, I mean, the way I think about it is when we're trying to focus our energy in the gun debate, which is scarce, the energy is scarce and the debate is hard to engage with. I think what Trevor said is exactly right. Like civil discourse is incredibly rare in this area. So it's really nice to have engage with some of it. Is that basically, if you're thinking about it in terms of a Venn diagram, there's sort of like three overlapping circles, all of which you want to sort of be satisfied, right? Like the proposals that matter that we should be focusing on are the ones that are effective like that actually save lives, reduce harms, whatever. And they are also politically feasible, right? They could actually have a chance of getting passed in the relevant jurisdictions and that they're constitutional, right? And there are lots of proposals out there that satisfy two of those and not the other, right? So one that um, is a big, gets a lot of attention and a lot of, sucks up a lot of oxygen in the debate um, is prohibitions on uh, what are called assault weapons, right? Now, the category of assault weapons is a very fuzzy category. It's really hard to define. Often people, when they're advocating assault weapons bans, don't actually know what they mean by what an assault weapon is. Courts have overwhelmingly upheld them as constitutional, so they satisfy this one. And they are, in some jurisdictions, politically feasible, so they satisfy this one. But the record's really mixed about whether they save lives, because the, the vast majority of gun deaths in this country are not assault weapon deaths. They're not mass shooting deaths. They're one-off handgun homicides or suicides, which by the way are the majority of gun deaths, deaths by suicide. Like it's it's not assault weapons, although those are the ones that tend to get a lot of headlines, right? That's in that respect a, a distraction from what I think if we focused attention maybe more on a better system of background checks or a better system of extreme risk protection orders. People talk about uh, that's what are often known as red flag laws that might actually have a little more um, payoff in terms of lives saved, which is at least one big measure from what, 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 what we need to focus on. I mean, I think on the other side, for, for, lack, of a better, for lack of a better way to put it, there are sometimes distractions where the, 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 the suggestion is, well, if we do X, Y, or Z, like have background checks, we're going to eviscerate the right to keep and bear arms, which I think is also a distraction because it's just not consistent with any plausible understanding of the right or the constitution. And that distracts energy too from what the real battles should be, which is like, there are laws out there that threaten the constitutional right. Focus on those, not against an expanded background check system, which probably wouldn't. So either way, I kind of want to have this tendency, I want to kind of bring people to the middle, like where the vast majority of Americans are, not the ones who are yelling the loudest, but the vast majority of Americans kind of are in the middle on this issue. Yeah, and I, I retire agreement. For me, the frustration of the debate is actually it's that we talk a lot about, I mean, what Joseph said is correct. So it's hard to say, but let's say all rifles, meaning like long guns, uh, that, that all rifles every year kill about 300 people a year, whereas about seven to eight, 7,000 are killed by handguns. Um, and so if you put a ton of effort into trying to regulate or even ban a gun that is not the focus of firearm deaths. The thing that really frustrates me about it is that you, legislative effort is, I live in, you know, I live in D, work in DC, it's a sort of finite resource. It would, be, it would be very difficult to pass such a bill, but if you put all this together and you got a bill passed, you would ban assault weapons. It said he did that. Um, the, the two problems with that, one of them is, is that if we took a gun and we just said, we, we said, okay, 300 people died of rifles last year, and then we, we made it disappear with a magic button. Like we literally just made them disappear in a puff of smoke. It does not mean that we would save 300 people next year uh, because of the way people substitute other types of guns and all these things. But also 
we have to focus on handguns and suicides uh, and, and these kind of things that actually make a difference. If you're changing the amount of magazine you can have between 15 and 10 rounds, it's hard to imagine a situation where that makes a big difference. So focusing the questions on the right question, focusing the issue on the right questions is extremely important here uh, if we're going to actually be serious about saving lives. So Trevor, I want to I follow up on that one. I think there's some really great, uh, really great conversations to be had about this specifically, right? So the, the conversation comes up, I think, related to what you just said, often people will say something along the lines of, well, wait a minute, guns are used in violent ways all the time, right? We, we see that here in Washington, D.C., unfortunately too common. We hear about it in Chicago or in other areas. Uh, why, why can't we just get rid of guns, right? It seems like we don't have guns, you don't have the problem. So what's, a, what's missing from that analysis? This is a really important point because, because uh, you also have to start from a realistic standpoint because I think that some people are extremely anti-gun. and, and you know, I mean, I, that, that's fine if you're anti-gun, but if you just say, okay, the, the starting point is that there are between 300 and 400 million guns in America, and we don't know where they are or who has them. Um, uh, the, the next point is that, I mean, so maybe, maybe it's true in some sort of Star Trek sense that a civilized society would have no guns in private hands, but like we literally can't get there from here. Um, and maybe guns are sort of disgusting or something, but we cannot get anywhere, even if you said you know, 90% of guns, Americans turn in 90% of guns uh, tomorrow out of some act of you know, civil, uh, they just, just civic mindedness, they turn them in. Well, that, that's still 30 to 40 million guns in America. Uh, and guess who didn't, who wouldn't turn in the guns, uh, right? I mean, the criminals would be the ones who wouldn't turn in the guns. Um, and another point I want to make, I'll put here just on this too, that's the real vicious trade-off in gun policy is that they are good for committing violence because the, the, the thing that makes good for committing violence against someone else is the same characteristic that makes it good for protecting yourself, which is that it projects force over a distance. Um, and so that's what people can do when they rob a convenience store, but it's also what someone does when they show a gun to someone who might be committing a crime against them. It's the same characteristic of the gun. So it's very hard to focus on specific types of guns. If they do what a gun does, it's dangerous uh, as, as a matter of policy, as opposed to who has them and how and how they're being acquired, as Joseph pointed out, background checks and things like this make more sense than choosing a gun and then trying to go after it. So I agree with all that. I, I would say what, what Trevor just said there is in some respects, like what I think of as like the awful symmetry that's at the heart of the gun debate, which is exactly the same thing that make a particular gun, a, a horrible weapon of terror in the wrong hands can make it a either, you know, a, a recreational tool or a tool of self-defense in other hands. And that, that makes it very hard to sort of, you know, lower the stakes on one side without threatening interests on, um, uh, uh, on the other. I mean, I, I would say that, you know, um, and, and I think Trevor's probably right that there are people who are sort of viscerally anti-gun in the same way there are other people who are sort of viscerally pro-gun. It's sort of part of one's identity to carry a gun, just like it's part of other people's identity to avoid it. But those people are a small minority. I mean, the, 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 the proposals on the table, even in the sort of what you might call anti-gun jurisdictions, are not prohibitions on firearm possession. That's off the table constitutionally, even if it were ever politically feasible. And even before Heller, 
the extreme, the most extreme position was DCs and Chicago's, which was no handgun ownership. You could still have long guns. I mean, there was still, it was still wasn't a total prohibition and they were the only two major jurisdictions that had those laws. I think the real debates are like about in the middle. It's like about, do you have to have a permit to carry your gun in public? You know, what is there, is there a way that we can set up a legal system to take guns out of the hands of people who are experiencing mental health crisis? Like, can we have background checks before you buy a gun? Like that's where the real rubber hits the road, I think in terms of what the, what the policy energy should, should be, which I think is consistent with what Trevor was saying. So I wanted to ask uh, one more question in this vein before we look ahead a little bit, talk a little bit about the, the litigation pending before the court. And that's uh, something that you both have started to touch on, but what is the, what's the most important thing that we can actually be doing when it comes to the relationship between the Second Amendment and uh, well, those outcomes that we're interested in seeing? So that idea of protecting the individual right to self-defense, but also solving for some of what feel like these societal ills, right? The, the violence question, whether that's suicide or murder, uh, that's a, a very convoluted question as a way of opening it up very broadly. And I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on uh, where should we, perhaps if we can boil it down to this, where should we actually be focusing our energy now when it comes to this conversation? Uh, Trevor, do you want to start? And then uh, Joseph from there? Uh, sure. Um, as I said, it's it's almost all, handguns should be the focus. If you're just talking about, uh, if, you're, if you are wanting to have a conversation about saving lives, Handguns should be the center of that conversation. Um, and as, and as Joseph pointed out, and this has to be said over and over and over again, two thirds of gun deaths are suicides. And the vast majority of those suicides are men between the ages of 25 and 64. And the real tragedy, and this is where I, so I don't, I mean, I, we won't get into this, I don't think the guns meaningfully cause crime. Um, they can cause crime, when when someone who let's say someone wants to rob a convenience store and and all they have is a knife and they're too scared to do that with just a knife but then they get a gun and they're like oh okay i can do it now with a gun that would be the moment where a criminal who wasn't going to commit a crime gets a gun and then commits a crime the question is is how many how many criminals and criminal acts are like that they're committed by very very what we call marginal criminals people who are on the edge of deciding to commit a crime uh, but when it comes to suicides, I think the presence of a gun in the home, uh, especially when it comes to substance abuse and stuff, and that you, you make a decision to commit suicide with a gun. And, and Joseph and I had talked about this. You know, the real tragic thing, you know, if you know if people who have ever survived a suicide attempt, uh, ninety percent of them regret it. Uh, and but the 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 gun the, the gun suicide is, is is much harder to come back from. Uh, than other types of attempted suicide. So for me, if, if we just say we focus on this, I mean, if we want to talk about very specific things like mass shootings, like what happened in Tennessee today, you know, those are like different policy prescriptions, but, and we should be, of course, concerned about that. But the vast majority of deaths are gun, are suicides and committed with pistols. So that has to be the focus of the conversation. And I can just pick up right from there, because again, I think Trevor and I are going to be echoing each other. Um, the, the, the gun suicide, epidemic maybe is a loaded word, but the gun, gun suicide death toll is just truly astonishing and does not get the focus that it deserves. And, and what Trevor said, I just want to emphasize, like so many of these are, for all we can tell, avoidable deaths um, because the, 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 the studies on this are just striking about how little time people spend thinking before they make their first attempt. 
their impulse moves. And when your impulse happens to be one that you've attempted with a gun, your attempt is with a gun, the rate of death is so much higher than if it's with any other implement. The substitution effect just doesn't work there. In other words, which is good, it means people survive. If they're using some other kind of an implement, they can get help. They're unlikely to die of suicide down the road. So to, to your question, Alan, one policy wish thing on my wish list anyway at the state level is our well-crafted extreme risk protection order laws, the so-called red flag laws. Now they have to be written correctly to ensure that there's due process for people who are losing their guns. But the way these work is they allow a judge to, on the petition of a family member, a law enforcement, law enforcement officer, it basically order that a gun be temporarily taken away from a person who presents an immediate risk to him or herself and or others. That is often gonna be the self risk because it'll be, you know, grandma died and grandpa is drinking a lot and is real sad and says, I can't go on. There, there should be a way to take the gun out of the house so the grandpa doesn't make a mistake that he can't come back from as, uh, as Trevor put it. So at the state level, that would be, a high, would be high on my wish list. And I should say, you know, in the last 10 years, about 20 states have adopted various versions of these laws. We actually are seeing some sort of movement on that. At the federal level, background checks um, are still on my wish list. Again, they have to be written correctly, expanded background checks, that is. Um, this is something that has been popular with 80% or more of Americans, vast majority of gun owners, vast majority of NRA members for years and years and years. They just have to be written correctly and sort of, you know, um, uh, and, and implemented correctly. Um, another thing that Trevor said that I just want to emphasize is I actually don't disagree with the idea that guns don't cause crime. Uh, I don't think they do. Um, I think that they do, in the wrong situations, intensify the harms of crime or of violence. I mean, when you look at the United States and our sort of rates of violent crime, they're not actually wildly out of step with comparable countries. Where we're wildly out of step is with homicides, because you know, an, an, an assault, a fight at a bar at the end of the night in the United States is much more likely to involve a firearm. And for all the reasons Trevor said, that firearm is much more likely to be fatal than a bottle or a knife or whatever people fight with in London at the end of the night or, uh, you know, whatever. That, that, that to me is like, again, coming back to what's so hard about this debate. Thank you both on that. Uh, just real quick, we've talked a little bit now about red flag laws that often pops up as a, a very uh, fraught conversation. Uh, Trevor, I wonder if you might add a little bit uh, on the devil's advocate side. What are what are some of the reasons why people, uh, for good or ill reasons, tend to be hesitant about red flag laws? What what are they, uh, first of all, for people who may not be familiar? And then uh, why, why is there so much of hesitancy around what something that sounds like uh, a fairly straightforward measure? Well, the, the devil's in the details, as Justin pointed out. Uh, just to give you one thing that's very concerning to me about how you craft one of these laws uh, is that, first of, all, first of all, that to be enforced. I and mean, this is like one of the things that's very disturbing to anyone in the gun policy like world. Uh, there's just a lot of gun laws that are on the book books that just are never enforced uh, or very rarely enforced. One of them, for example, is, is straw purchasers, which is when you're a felon and you can't buy a gun or even hold a gun without committing a federal felony um, or, or a bullet, by the way, um, that, that's also a felony. Um, and so you, you ask someone to buy a gun for you, they pass the background check and then they give it to you. Uh, that's a felony on both sides, right? I mean, there's just a lot of, but, but if you went to prosecutors and said, you know, go after straw purchasers, they're, they're gonna say we have, generally say we have better things to do. Um, when it comes to red flag laws, you know, we, we've seen in, in places like the, the Parkland shooting, for example, we've seen so many of these shooters were notified. I mean, the law enforcement was notified about these people. 
and and the, the law enforcement needs to take some of this stuff seriously and they often don't um, that's a huge problem but the other when it comes to the mental health angle the thing that, that concerns me and and knowing like I mean, I am a gun owner, but but not not like a gun enthusiast, but especially some of my friends who are gun enthusiasts who have had mental health struggles at different times, they have been afraid of going and asking for help if they're living in a state that has red flag laws because their hobby is guns and they're afraid that the, the therapist or whoever will, will say, oh, okay, we're gonna take your guns now because they're looking, I'm feeling suicidal. And so they don't even go get therapy. And that's a huge concern when it comes to self-harm is how do you construct that law and you don't discourage people? I mean, you know, a lot of people don't understand that gun, enth so gun enthusiasts, I mean, they're, like, they're hobbyists. This is their hobby. I, you know, I work on guitars. I have a bunch of guitars. That's my hobby. And for them, because guns are the same thing. And so, so if I was gonna lose my hobby because I would go to someone and ask for help, uh, I might not go ask for help. So that, that's a big concern. Excellent. Thanks, Trevor. Uh, so Let's take a look going forward. So the uh, in front of the Supreme Court coming up in this term is a case by the name of New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. Uh, very prominent case, very interesting argument going on there. Uh, Joseph, perhaps you can start for us. Tell us a little bit about uh, what this case is about, what's in front of the court in particular. Uh, and then uh, Trevor, you can talk a little bit about the, the argument itself, what the, what the sides are presenting currently. Yeah, I'd be happy to. I mean, I, and I'll try to keep this kind of high level because there's lots of sort of details here about what's happening with the actual, it's a law from New York that's being, um, uh, that's being challenged here. But I guess I'd say at a, at a broad level, one of the big important questions that Heller did not clearly resolve is whether and how the right to keep and bear arms extends outside the home. And the reason Heller didn't decide that is because Dick Heller was only asking to have a handgun in his home. That's all the Supreme Court had to decide and they decided that he could have that. So they didn't have to say anything about, well, what if he wants to carry it out in public, right? But a lot of gun restrictions involve exactly that, carrying your gun out in public. And some jurisdictions, about eight, but they're big ones like New York, California, have restrictions that in various forms say, if you're gonna carry a gun in public, usually this means concealed, you have to have a permit. And to get a permit, you have to show something like good cause or proper cause, which is usually equated with like a need for self-defense above and beyond that of the average person in the population, like you faced a threat or you work in a high, you know, a, a business that's been criminalized or something like that, right? So those laws, often called public carry laws or public carry restrictions, like are, are really, really contested. There's a lot of litigation about these um, in California, in New York, in New Jersey, uh, Maryland, and Washington, D.C. Um, uh, and in resolving them, most courts have held or assumed, yes, the right to keep and bear arms extends outside your house, but once you leave your house, the government has more power to restrict it than if you're in your house, which is how most constitutional rights work. Like if you're, you know, your right to privacy, it's strongest in your house. Understandably, rights to free speech, like to possess speech act, uh, speech materials that would be uh, obscene and bannable outside your house, you get to keep them when you're inside your house, right? Self-defense law, your right self-defense highest in your house, right? So it's sort of mapping on to some sort of um, background legal principles, if you like. But a lot of gun rights advocates have pointed out, look, the right to self-defense goes wherever you are. And if you're in a public place, a dark parking lot or whatever else, you might need your gun there. And if you can't have it, then you're in real threat. So there's been a lot of litigation about this. I think at a sort of substantive level, the maybe basic question, the most important one in Bruin is, does the right, will the Supreme Court say 
that the right to keep and bear arm extends outside the home. And my guess is that it will, um, and that we'll get a decision by the end of this term that says that it does. There are deeper sort of methodological questions about what's the test the court's going to use from here on out to determine whether other kinds of gun laws are constitutional. Um, and I can talk about this. This is like very much in the sort of con law geeking out area. Um, so I can, you know, go, go into the details on this. But I would say that the basic choice is between the existing framework called the two-part test or two-part framework, which is sort of a combination of is this law touching anything that the Second Amendment cares about, or is it just regulating, you know, groups that the Second Amendment doesn't care about or guns that the Second Amendment doesn't cover? If so, if it does touch the Second Amendment, does it satisfy the requisite level of what we call scrutiny? That is, does the government have a good reason to do what it's doing? That's the existing test in most of the lower courts and all of the actually lower courts. Or should we evaluate gun laws based solely by reference to text, history, and tradition, which is not a test that applies in any of the courts of appeals so far, but does have some very prominent supporters, including on the Supreme Court, Justice Kavanaugh is kind of the author of this test to begin with. So that's from a sort of con law geek background, that's the sort of bigger stakes than whether or not this law gets, uh, gets struck down. And the interesting question, I mean, when it comes to the, the carry debate uh, for people talking about the constitution where, where you say, you know, so for some of the more uh, Republican appointed justices, their, their position is usually that, you know, that the, it is the constitution that has decided where the lot, what the values are going to be, and that value is the right to have, just in the same way that the Constitution decided that we have a right to not be unreasonably searched by police, even though it might sometimes be good for the public safety if police could just say, I think that guy's committing a crime, and then they stop a crime, but the Constitution has come down on the side of your right to, be, to not have this, the searches on you without probable cause or reasonable suspicion. So the Second Amendment, when you say, um, you know, can you put a discretionary limit on it as put forth by some government officials? So a lot of, so you say, I want to carry a gun and the state law in New York or New Jersey says you can carry a gun if you can demonstrate that you need to carry a gun. And you have to demonstrate that usually to something like the local sheriff. So you've now given the local sheriff like a lot of power over arguably what is a right in the constitution that is explicitly listed. Because it would be if you flipped it around to the First Amendment, you said, I'd like to have a parade. Uh, and then you say, OK, in order for you to have a parade, you have to get a permit. And one of the things you have to do is you have to convince the, the sheriff that what you want to say is worth saying. Well, that 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 is not First Amendment kosher. Like we're not going to empower some sheriff to just decide that you don't have the right to speak because the Constitution has decided that. So that's a lot of where this conversation is gonna happen is if just giving this amount of discretion to a public official is, is against the sort of spirit and letter and text and history of the Constitution. Excellent, thank you both so much. So I wanted to turn the conversation now to Q&A. So we've got a handful that have come in from the chat and I wanna encourage those of you watching tonight to, to please do add more as we go. Uh, the first question from Sue Eikenberry. Sue asks, I always remember gun violence in the District of Columbia. Did it go up after Heller or is the cause perhaps the easy availability of guns in DC? What, what's going on, right? So in uh, uh, Sue lives here and teaches in Washington, DC. So a very local question. Uh, what, what practically speaking happened or can we say happened uh, in our neck of the woods following the Heller decision? Start, Joseph. No, that's great. I mean, I, I disclaimed at the beginning any policy expertise here. So, Sue, I, I, I'm sorry to dodge your question because it's a very important one. Um, I don't know. Um, I, 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 okay, I, 
There, I do. <laughs> there is a lot. There is a lot of research out there on what happens when a jurisdiction changes its gun laws in one direction or the other, and that the research is authored by people unlike Trevor and I, who are public health experts and economists who can sort of hold a lot of different variables constant and say, okay, this one thing changed, and then therefore, you know, a lot of lives were saved or a lot of lives were lost. And my own view on this, Trevor, yours may differ, and this is my just, you know, being a interested but non-expert consumer is that there is evidence on on both sides enough to disappoint you whatever your priors are and so people who believe that gun laws are always going to save lives are going to be disappointed to find that the assault federal assault weapons prohibition over a period of 10 years maybe didn't save a single life people who support gun rights are going to be disappointed to know that when missouri relaxed its purchase to permit requirement violent crime jumped 10 percent in a year which of those is the thing you should very it, it, I, I honestly it's hard to say because there are so many confounding variables. So I will say this, in the lead up to Heller, a lot of discussion was had about crime rates and gun crime rates in the district, which had adopted this gun law in the 1970s and seen its violent crime spike throughout the 1980s. And so opponents of the law said, hey, look, you adopted this gun law and then your violent crime rate went through the roof and homicides went through the roof. Other people said, well, yeah, that's because it did everywhere because of the crack epidemic. That's what was really driving it. And I just I don't have the statistical chops to sort of isolate one variable over over the other. But Trevor, maybe you got more confidence. On I, that. I, I, no, we're in the same place. I will say some things, and if you disagree about these, some facts that I think any honest researcher will agree with, which is that uh, one, we've had we, we had a spike last year, and there's a lot of going on. But but basically, since 1992, uh, the murder rate has essentially been cut in half. And in, in in in, and not just America, in the world. Uh, and there's a lot of people who like talk of the violent crime rate has just dropped basically in the entire world. And there's it's a constant public policy sort of why that happened. Now, if you just grafted in America, you would you would have guns going like this and violent crime going like this. I mean, it would just they would be moving it off like the amount of guns in private hands has probably doubled since 1990, and the murder rate, victimization rate has gone down. So that's a confounding issue. Um, you can't, there's so many different things that, that jurisdictions differ in that it's just very hard to just take one variable like guns and say, because you don't, you don't have, you have to, how many cops are on the street, you know, how much funding do the cops have, you know, socioeconomic status, how much do people drink? I mean, you might be surprised that how much alcohol consumption is somewhat correlated to violent crime rates. So you have to control for every single one of those. It's my general opinion. If you look at uh, in, internationally at interpersonal gun violence, uh, but to people shooting not themselves, but other people, uh, it has essentially no correlation to the amount of gun ownership. Now that again, that it's that's a, that's you get into that, but you can graph the difference between say Ireland and Serbia. Well, like Ireland has three times the amount of guns, but like half the gun crime rate of Serbia, and you can get into this, and, and there just seems to be no correlation. So, what happened after the direct question? What happened after Heller? Uh, crime in DC continue to go down, but I live in DC. There's a lot of gentrification. There's a lot of changing of property values. So you, you can't just be like, oh, right. It, it was this one thing that, that, that changed it. The only thing I would add to that, because what, what Trevor said, I think is so important just to again, emphasize is like the crime rate has, again, with the past two years has been a little bit disturbing in sort of lots of different directions, but the crime rate has generally been falling, but people's perception of what the violent crime rate continues to just escalate. If people are scared of a, crime wave that's not happening. And that's that has all kinds of tricky implications, I think, for the gun debate, because people who there are people who may need guns for self-defense, 
but it may be there are people who don't necessarily need them but think they do. And that's a tricky, like that's a tricky area. So what, what Trevor said earlier, I 100% agree with. I think there is absolutely a fundamental right to self-defense, which pre-exists and does not depend on the constitution. I don't think it has anything to do, it would exist whether or not we had a second amendment. You could change any of those 27 words. You absolutely have a right to self-defense. But then all the hard work is, as Trevor noted, like what does it mean to have an effective means to exercise that right? And it's still the case that a tiny proportion of actions of self-defense involve guns and only a tiny proportion of guns are ever used for self-defense. Like the, the overlap is very, very small. Now for those people, it means everything. It means they saved their lives perhaps. And that's really, really, really crucial. But to conflate the sort of like, it, it's easy to go from sort of perception of crime, fear of crime, gun self-defense, self-defense. And they actually are kind of separate, like conceptually and otherwise. Uh, two quick questions. Well, potentially not quick, but two questions that actually, I want to I, one thing, I, I'll, There's one thing I want to, here's a good little factoid about how different this uh, debate can be. So the question of how much do people uh, defend them defend themselves with guns a year in the United States there the debate is basically between about a hundred thousand times a year and about 2.5 million times per year yeah, yeah. That, that's the that's the range of where that debate is and there's scholars on all side of that the, the, the government says like the government's own service says it's about a hundred thousand times a year and then independent researchers have come up with 2.5 million times a year that's a big difference. And we don't know. I'll be honest, I don't know. It's in the middle. <laughs> uh, so what yeah, I, bet I go for that too. I was like, in the middle, sure. <laughs> <laughs> One question we got in that I think uh, you guys touched on a little bit earlier, but I want to bring it up a little bit more explicitly is uh, uh, much like the tragic situation today when it comes to this idea of mass shootings. Uh, mass shootings are particularly problematic. Uh, how do we? How do we reconcile the the sort of dangers of mass shootings with the uh, with the right to self defense with uh, some of our, our regulations around gun laws? Is there is there anything sensible that can be done about that? I think that actually I would say I want to it, it's absolutely horrendous and but the interesting thing is that I would rather look at things that are not guns because in 1964 you could have purchased an AR-15 through the mail, uh, depending on maybe your state law, like with essentially no, at least federal regulation of whether you could buy that. Uh, but there were not, people weren't doing this. There was a, when it was easier to get gone, you get the same one, people weren't doing this. Uh, we've, we've created a crime script that kind of has been, people are acting out. And that's what really disturbs me, like, cause you could do it with any gun. Uh, and, and so that it's just why, what happened between these two different times that like suddenly, so I'm from Colorado and I, I mean, I, I had friends in Columbine and that created a script and I've researched these people like way too much. It's not the funnest thing to research. And and you know, just a huge amount of them are, are emulated. So, so it's the sort of the question of like, why do they do this? It is not the gun and how they get it. I, that's my personal opinion. I don't know what Joseph does. Yeah, I, I don't wholly disagree with this. And, and I see that we, we've got a lot of really good questions about this. It's something that's on people's minds and I think not wrongly. And, and, and when I say this, it's not, to, it's not to denigrate the harm that mass shootings do. I'll just sort of walk you through my evolution of sort of thinking about this. I mean, the, the thing that I found striking when I started working in the gun area was how few, proportionally speaking, of gun deaths in the United States are mass shooting deaths. It's like 1%. It's, it's, a, it's a tiny proportion, even when you put together the sort of 
mass, mass deaths in places like Las Vegas or, or Aurora, Columbine, Tennessee, Indianapolis, like the more recent ones, like Columbine going back to like what was, it seemed like a sort of a harbinger, right? There, there are moments that, you know, are so affecting, but in the sort of grand toll of roughly 30,000 gun deaths, again, two thirds of those deaths by suicide, 100,000 people about every year are shot. It's still mostly the handguns and it's disproportionately in urban areas and it is disproportionately young black men. It's, it's, it's concentrated in communities which are not the ones that get the attention following every sort of mass shooting. So, so my initial reaction was, well, we should be focusing on something else and not so much on the mass shootings. And I've changed on that a bit. And this is maybe what's coming through in the questions here in the chat is that I've come to understand like the harm of a mass shooting goes so far beyond the people who've actually died. And you know, those of you who are educators will know this. I mean, CNN has a running story where they keep track of the victims of school shootings. And I'm putting this in quotes because that's the title. And it's like, they put like, I think that the, it's like 300 something or whatever, because they're only counting the number of people who died as a result of bullets killing them, like bullets hitting their bodies. And I think that's a dramatic undercount because there are thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands or more who were, lives were changed, who were traumatized by the events, who lost people, who were traumatized by active shooter drills. Like those ripple effects are extraordinary and I think they really matter. Now it's hard to make them fit into the traditional way we think about guns, which is focused on bullets and bodies. But I think, it's, I think it has to be part of the discussion. So I'm, I'm sympathetic with the question, even though again, I just say like the, the, the problem in terms of deaths is, is not a mass, it's the mass shootings are, are just a tiny proportion of the problem. So we're, I totally agree, Joe. I, I think we need, I, I, I think we diminish been a people on the gun rights side, which is my side of this, like <laughs> also as a gun rights person, but uh, diminish the actual harms of these actually. But it, and and I've I've thought so many different things. What can we do? We we, we like, it, it, identify these people. It's, we go after their gun. I mean, the, the mass shooter is the hardest person to dissuade with any gun law. In the in between that, right? That this is a person who's very very intent on doing something, and so background checks. I mean, you know, these kind of things maybe, but they're the hardest one to dissuade. Uh, and I, I mean, you know, people say assault weapons. Like, I mean, Virginia Tech was pistols, and like that actually scares me a lot because pistols are concealable. Uh, so I mean, so, you know, you, you get into some gritty gory details, and it's just like, how, how do you identify these people? And like, in the mental health thing, red flag laws, all this stuff, like, is better, I think, than picking the last, the gun used in the last shooting and then trying to ban it. So Trevor Joseph, this has been a fantastic conversation. I want to ask one very last question, but I'm going to ask you to keep your response to 30 seconds apiece uh, on this one. Uh, joining us tonight are, are teachers from across the country who teach a wide variety of subjects, uh, many of whom will uh, end up having conversations about uh, the Second Amendment, about guns, uh, about self-defense, uh, this school year. So the question that I have for both of you is, what is one thing that you would want to say they make sure they impart to their students when talking about these conversations? <laughs> you pointed at me first. So I'll, I'll be very quick. I, 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 don't, I wouldn't presume to tell educators how to educate. You all, you all know your students and your job so much better than, than, um, than I do or than I could. I, I think the thing to hopefully emphasize is that there's hope in this discussion. Hopefully Trevor and I have modeled this at least a little bit is that even people coming from very different sides and I think people would predict that Trevor and I come from different sides on this can find a lot of common ground. I think actually the vast majority of Americans agree on the vast majority of issues in the gun debate 
they just have a hard time kind of seeing eye to eye because they make these initial judgments about, oh, you're a hunter, you think this, or, you know, you, that, and that's to get beyond that, if you, if you can, and it's not easy, I think you actually, it can be a satisfying debate, even though the political in the headlines version really is not. So if I had to do one thing, I guess that's what I would say. I would first emphasize, make sure the number you, you the numbers aren't that hard to find. And they're not that disputed, like in terms of what kills the most people, what are the nature of the types of deaths that happen, uh, you know, has crime been going up and down? Like that's just the make get that correct. Um, I also think it's important to, for me. It's like maybe bias, like in your education stuff. You can sort of, especially given like our, you know, I think welcome like like emphasis on America's sort of you know, checkered history, especially when it comes to constitutional law, that guns have not always been about, um, you know, there are African-Americans after the Civil War really cared about gun rights. Uh, and, and so there's like a story that's not often told that maybe would be interesting, for example, that the people who could not count on the cops to like not shoot them and much less protect them, they really cared about gun rights. So it's not it's not just this sort of like, like very simple story that some people tell. There's a rich story of, of people using guns and, and especially people of color using guns. So it's a, that, that, I think that story is one that's like, would be interesting in the current context to like get into uh, if you're if we're just looking for your students. Excellent. Joseph, Trevor, thank you both so much for the conversation tonight. That was fantastic. I'd love to turn it over now briefly to my colleague, Karen Rossiter. Many of you met her at Summit this summer. She's gonna talk a little bit more about uh, how do you continue to stay involved with Sphere and what's next for us? Karen? Thanks, Alan. Uh, thank you everyone for being here tonight. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Your questions were great. So thank you so much for that. Um, I'm really excited to announce we will be launching a new website in October. We're gonna have new human progress lessons and then a bunch of other resources. Our resources are going to include discussion questions, videos, and then more lessons on all, a range of topics. Sphere will also be on the road this fall and we will pre be presenting a workshop at the Florida Council for Social Studies Conference in October and then the Texas Council for Social Studies in November. If you're attending either of these, please stop by and see us. It's always nice to have familiar faces in the audience when we're presenting at a new place. And as always, if you would like us to come present or do a workshop at your school or district, please send me an email and we can work together to make that happen. These are just a few of the exciting Sphere events happening this fall. So please keep an eye out for announcements about the next webinar and the most exciting thing, the launch of our new website. So thank you all so much. Oh, I just see somebody will be at the Florida Council. Yay. Um, this concludes the program for tonight. So thank you for coming. And I hope you all have a great night and happy Friday tomorrow. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Bye. Thank you all so much for coming.